Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. I am currently on the far eastern end of Long Island in the middle of some violent thunderstorm. So I hope I don't get connected. Also somewhere on this island, we have our regular Thursday co-host, Ryan Goodman. How are you, Ryan? Are you at risk of a thunderstorm or tornado? I am for the next uh, three hours. (laughs) (laughs) Three hours. Jesus Christ. Well, of course, I feel responsible because we arrived here for the beach. And needless to say, you know, severe weather immediately followed us. Uh, also joining us from the Washington, D.C. area, we have Rosa Brooks in the vicinity of Alexandria, Virginia. Hi, Rosa. How are you? Hello, David. It's sunny and calm here. Uh, well, it may be calm in your part of Washington, but over where Kavita Patel is, it's never calm. <laughs> Hi, Kavita. Um, Hi, David. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. I enjoyed you yesterday on some iteration I saw of you on the internet where you were talking about the CDC or something and you just said, that's it. I'm out. They're too crazy. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's true. I I am. I'm I'm done. I'm no longer trying to even understand what's happening. It's just too crazy. Well, we'll go and we'll start. We'll go to the convention in a minute, but just tell us why you're done with the CDC while we're here. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I should say I'm done with this administration's treatment of the of well of everything related to the coronavirus, and very quickly, uh, the CDC Wednesday changed guidance uh, around uh, sorry Tuesday changed guidance for asymptomatic people with no symptoms of coronavirus, stating and I'm be, I'm being horribly blunt because that's exactly what their statement was. Uh, that if you have been in close contact with somebody with the coronavirus and you have no symptoms, you do not need to get tested, which goes, it flies in the face of the agency's own recommendations and findings from months before, flies in the face of everything we know about this virus globally. And to make it even more reprehensible, when I stated I was done yesterday, it was after there was a press briefing by the CDC yesterday afternoon where Brett Giroir, the admiral, stated, who's in charge of testing for the Trump administration, stated that the CDC made their recommendations and then they were edited by members of the task force, naming Deborah Burks, Dr. Burks, Dr. Tony Fauci, and Dr. Atlas. And then we come to find out from a statement from Dr. Atlas to Sanjay Gupta on CNN that he couldn't have done anything to edit these recommendations because he was having surgery on his vocal cords last week. So (laughs) one lie on top of the other, on top of the other, indefensible. And this isn't just the CDC. There's so much chaos that Donald Trump throws into it. I mean, it is truly the definition of gaslighting because 
the FDA Sunday night with an approval of plasma that had, you know, questionable studies behind it. And then HHS forcing hospitals to submit their healthcare data or they would risk losing add-on Medicare funding. And then the CDC, all within a three-day period, all while the Republican convention was going on, where they were in some la-la land of pre-pandemic states with no masks, no social distancing, and really no problem. So I'm done. That's it. That's it. I'm out. Peace. I'm, I'm for the listeners <laughs> who can't see it. I've got a mic and I'm dropping it and I'm out. That's it. That's it. <laughs> um, yeah, well, um, but the CDC is apparently starting to walk this back today. Yeah, they I are, just, but I, Robert Redfield, the director, the agency head said, you know, you may need testing, which is even further insult to kind of, you know, again, people need clear, the, the public is tired, frustrated, scared. And when we're opening schools and we've got literally universities that have incredible super spreader events and hot spots, we're saying people may need to get tested. And all, all the while, by the way, while cutting a multi-hundred million dollar deal with Abbott, which had an 8% rise in stocks today for one of their 15-minute rapid tests. The government has bought out, essentially, a number of these rapid tests. My question is, to whom? For what? You know, and that's, anyway, for, for later discussions on the deep state. Can you imagine how disappointed people have been speaking to Robert Redfield his whole life? And they go, Robert Redford, and, and everybody's like, Robert, Red, Robert Redford? I'm going to talk to Robert, and it's, no, it's Robert Redfield. And it's like a huge. <laughs> That's the least of the reasons that I'm always disappointed when I speak <laughs> to Robert Redfield. <laughs> um, every time I hear his name, it's like, what? Oh, no, it's that guy. Um, okay. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way. Um, you know, I was going to go and do this in one order. I'm going to do it in the reverse order because we started with that. But let me turn to Rosa and then Ryan for another of the week's events, and then we'll go to the convention after that. Um, but, uh, Rosa, we have now had yet again an instance of a police department uh, shooting um, a, a black man, uh, in this case, seven times, paralyzing him, uh, shooting him in the back, shooting him in front of his children uh, without any apparent provocation. Uh, 48 hours later, they came up with the story that he had a knife, but noted that the knife was between the carpet and the floorboard of the car he was not in. Um, and this has led to some remarkable um, uh, stuff, including uh, a strike on the part of many professional athletes uh, last night and, uh, and, and some more violence. Uh, this seems to be the big recurring story of the summer, and the Republicans are now trying to spin it into Democrat cities are out of control, uh, even though uh, the, the violence in this case and the victims in this case uh, were the result first of this uh, uh, heinous act by this police officer, and subsequently two other people were killed when a 17-year-old with an AR-15 rifle opened fire on the protesters, uh, killing them. And then we have video of the police kind of embracing this demented right-wing terrorist 17-year-old. Um, 
Anyway, that's just sums up the story. Rosa, what's your reaction to that? And I'll go to Ryan. Oh, boy. Well, to quote Kellyanne Conway, the more chaos and anarchy and vandalism and violence reigns, the better it is. Um, uh, she was, she was uh, on Fox, of course. and She will, she will not be missed, Kellyanne she will, Conway. She will not be missed, um, but she's, she is not gone. Uh, in fact, obviously, she may have stepped down from her official White House position, but she, she's pretty darn ubiquitous for someone who has uh, stepped down to spend more time with her family. Um, no, I, I mean, I think, I think obviously the, the problems with policing are deep, very, very deep. Um, I think it's, I, I, I think I've, I've often said this before, I think the big city police departments are sort of the least of it because big city police departments do tend to be under a media spotlight spotlight, uh, 365 days a year, whereas in small towns and in rural areas uh, where there is much less media attention, uh, I think the the problems in police departments and sheriff's departments sometimes run much, much deeper because there's less scrutiny and there's less public pressure for transparency and for change. And I think in, in... uh, Wisconsin, we're, we're seeing that, um, uh, you know, as, as you know, I mean, there are lots of things that we could talk about here. Um, you know, as, as you know, policing in the U S is extremely decentralized. There are roughly 18,000 separate law enforcement agencies. There is no nationwide standards for training. Uh, there are no nationwide standards for sort of ongoing, uh, uh, sort of professional development or, or, continuous continuing education there are no nationwide standards uh, other than the very very low baseline threshold set by the u.s supreme court um, which is very very low and very permissive and and very much sort of favors uh uh you know not second guessing the police which which and, and you know not to mention the qualified immunity doctrine which has made it very hard to use the courts to drive change in policing practices um so yeah, we're we're still we're continuing to see uh, what certainly appear to be entirely unjustifiable police uses of force um, around the country, and and we're going to continue to see that uh, until we get much more thoroughgoing changes. Meanwhile, and I started off by quoting Kellyanne, um, I think that sort of depressingly, the GOP does see this as playing right into their hands that that they. They regard chaos, violence, anarchy, confusion, division as playing in their favor for electoral purposes as Trump tries to hold himself out as the one thing standing between white suburban women and all hell breaking loose, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You know, Kellyanne put it into words. The more chaos and vandalism and violence, the better it is for the Republicans. Um, I hope they're wrong. Um, I hope that they are wrong about that. I hope that I hope that the majority of Americans sort of see this for what it is, which is a you know a truly unconscionable strategy of of encouraging violence and division uh, in order to justify all kinds of crackdowns and 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 in order to make the claim you know the Democrats can't keep you safe. I and I was actually. I, I, I like to I like to think that it is now hard to shock me at least with Donald Trump statements, but I don't know 
the, I, the media barely even seemed to notice that last week when Trump was speaking to the right right wing so called National Policy Center, uh, you know, he was using language like if 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 Biden wins, people will be terminated, you know, life will end, and I and I really was shocked, um, you know, because that's the language of of genocide and war, you know, and it's so stunningly beyond irresponsible. It's it's incitement, um, but that's that's where we are. That's where this country is right now. We have a, a you know, a president and people, his minions like Kellyanne, who are, you know, who they're not sad about this. They're not saying, my God, our fellow Americans, we must, we must put an end to this violence. We must put an end to police violence. We must put an end to vigilante violence. Uh, they're saying, hey, bring it on. We love this stuff. You know, I just, I, I hope that deep state listeners out there appreciate the fact that not only do we get together our friends for these conversations, but when we want to talk about, you know, a pandemic, we have Kavita, who's a doctor, to talk about the pandemic, a healthcare professional. And Rosa is not only a cop uh, in her spare time, but is also a white suburban woman. And so, so she's a good point, David. Very good point. Here I am in my in my suburb. And there you are in a suburb. And if only Ryan were an NBA basketball player, things would really, really be, you know, sort of sorted out here. Ryan, how, tell us about your basketball career. <laughs> um, so. <laughs> You're just going to skip right over that and just go into the substantive yeah. commentary. Yeah, didn't say that, Ryan. Yeah, yeah I also <laughs> don't follow professional sports. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but I was, well, well, let me, let me frame one part of this question to me, because one of the things that Republicans have been trying to do is, um, it say that the violence is the result of the left. And it turns out the violence is the result of the right. It turns out not only is it the result of the right, um, but that, you know, the, these people are actually right wing extremists. There is you know, real threat. And now, as some of the folks who are coming out from the Department of Homeland Security under Trump are starting to talk about problems they've had there, one of the things they've talked about is downplaying that real threat of right-wing extremism in the U.S. So maybe you want to talk about that as a place to start. Sure. It's actually one of the take-home points that I thought about as well. Um, so I guess let me go right to it. So that the other event of the week, I guess, is the idea that there are now these um, former members of the Trump administration who have come out on record, um, not anonymously. In fact, they're cutting ads on videos and um, going on TV and speaking about it. And um, the mo some of the most vocal ones, this particular in the past few days, I actually have been exactly as you said, David, from like the Department of Homeland Security and, and um, uh, Miles Taylor and then Elizabeth Newman, the former Assistant Secretary for Threat Prevention in the DHS, and have said these very things, that he had no interest in hearing about right-wing extremism. Um, there's a really important video by Elizabeth Newman in which she spells out, um, so I say ads, but it's really public service announcements is a better way of putting it. 
um, she spells out um, how she thinks that Trump has become a direct threat to the United States because of how he has fomented uh, right-wing violence. And she says what many of us have been thinking and saying all along, uh, which are the various statements on the part of the president giving permission to white supremacists. Uh, that's the message, the signal that they receive uh, from his words, from good, you know, fine people on both sides to various other things over the months and years. And she saw it from the inside, so she actually knows, you know, exactly what he should know he's doing and the rest of it. So it's, uh, you know, they're coming out not just saying this, but they actually have signed a document that says that um, another term for Trump uh, would that he can't, you know, the country will not survive essentially intact um, because he's a direct threat to national security. And I think that's an important part of this. And I think the highest level of concern that we have for this is the next couple months because they obviously seem to be um, profiting off of the level of disruption as part of a campaign. It's turned into their campaign strategy um, to foment it and to escalate it rather than de-escalate. And um, I think, and we'll, I guess we're about to get into the convention, the Republican convention, but I think one of the pieces of that is that we see it's not just one single person, Donald Trump, who singularly lies all the time, but it's this entire organizational apparatus around him that is willing to lie too and willing to amplify this message too. So the Kellyanne Conway point is one of them. And then just to name another one that's not in the Republican Party, Fox News in the last 24 hours has uh, come out um, justifying the acts of this individual who took up arms and has killed two people and maimed another person, saying that he's a you know, quote-unquote a vigilante and he had to act when there was a vacuum of authority. Um, Tucker Carlson said it last night, but then two more Fox um, hosts said it today. They were checked on air. Um, by Chris Wallace, uh, thankfully, but it shows um, how this um, environment is fomenting it in all sorts of ways. You know, a moment ago when you said another term for Trump, my mind as somebody who writes sometimes was to think of other terms for Trump. Um, <laughs> uh, and I came up with many uh, fairly, fairly rapidly. But of course, the most disturbing term that I can think of for Trump would be a second term. And that is the purpose of this whole week's long endeavor. Uh, and so the next thing I'd like to do is to go to each of you and get your reactions to the RNC festivities, noting for listeners that we are uh, recording this on a Thursday uh, early evening. And so we have not seen uh, the president uh, ex his big acceptance speech. He's been a constant presence throughout this, uh, but uh, I understand there's a lot of theatrics coming tonight with helicopters and invisible fighter jets or whatever. You know, it's going to be a big Trumpian thing. Kavita, have you have you been able to watch some of it? I I, uh, I have taken my um, anti-nausea medication each night in advance of the RNC and. And I know it's easy to just, so let me try for even a moment because yes, I have watched about 70 to 80% and I, I don't think I'm missing that much in the remainder I haven't seen. And but let me just take a step back. Like I, I alluded to, I'm stunned because, you know, you see these montages and footage and even live footage of, 
you know, people who seem to have completely ignored that we are in a pandemic, everything from, you know, a lack of social distancing. And you could even say, by the way, I know that the White House press corps or press uh, secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, would say, oh, you know, Kavita, you, you idiot. It's because we're testing everyone that comes to see, you know, is coming into the uh, White House, et cetera. And that simply is not acceptable because we know that you can still be in that time period where you're not testing positive and you're transmitting the virus. That's the little byproduct. So in addition to that, so there's the kind of disdain around the pandemic. And then I'll say as a former White House staffer, two things that I just want to highlight to listeners. Number one, you've never seen conventions kind of feature current staff in the White House. And, and I think Ryan kind of teed up former um, kind of political appointees, you saw current, uh, not even political appointees, but advisors to the president, uh, everybody's political, but they don't have any jurisdiction. They're just, you know, friend of the president who happens to be in the West Wing making statements. That's something that's highly unusual. And then the second, not being the attorney on the panel, the violations of the Hatch Act were so numerous and so egregious that if we weren't in an election year, I mean, that alone should be the basis for impeachment articles again. And so those are my thoughts. And I'll just put a little predictor. We're going to see fireworks, you know, a lot of fanfare. I think building off of Rose's excellent point, there's more divisive language in this convention. And because I watched both the DNC and RNC, obviously the Democrats had to, you know, put a stake in the sand about how much Trump has done. But it was it was troubling to me, David, that I found myself kind of feeling like Melania Trump was the first time I even heard any semblance of sympathy, empathy, or emotion. And and then she kind of went off on this tangent, or not tangent, but a trail against the media. And then her bizarre Be Best campaign, which seems to be for everybody else except the president you know, of the country. But those are my impressions. And, and I will say, I don't know why. But I think that this message of hate and divisiveness, my fear is that by painting Joe Biden to be a socialist who wants to defund the police and terminate lives, I'm worried that this could actually work. Uh, but having said that, normally conventions are there to activate your base and to increase and enhance your base. And I don't know if this is increasing or enhancing, uh, but certainly activating a disturbing part of the base. Um. Yeah, no, there's no question about that. I, I thought Melania's choice of wearing a Cuban army uniform was also a little strange, but that's... Well, there's, there's a whole side, uh, as you can imagine, a Twitter frenzy over her fashion choices. For the viewers and listeners who don't think the deep state follows fashion trends, that was an Alexander McQueen, obviously thousands of dollars. Uh, army military style jacket, only to be outdone by her flouncy pink dress, which she wore to Pence's address yesterday in Fort McHenry, Baltimore, Maryland, which was designed by Jason Wu, who was famously put on the map for fashion by designing Michelle Obama's uh, 2009 inaugural gown. So there's there it is, Deep State. Get your fashion commentary yep. as well. See, there's Melania plagiarizing Michelle Obama yet again. Um, uh, Rosa, you know, one of the things that strikes me is a point that 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 uh, Kavita just brought up about the serial violations of the Hatch Act. I wrote a piece on, on Pompeo's violations. There have been other violations. Um, uh, 
and 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 Mark Meadows, the the chief staff of the White House, said, "Well, Americans don't really care about this stuff," which brings us to a new point. Both you and Ryan, as lawyers, must appreciate that we've apparently entered the period of optional laws in the U.S., and that there are these laws that we only sort of have to follow if people care about them, and if people don't care about them, then we can ignore them. And the Hatch Act, by the way, you know, it sounds like a very wonky D.C. thing, but you know, it's not. It's, the idea is, if you're an incumbent, you shouldn't have the ability to use the resources of the U.S. government to get reelected, because that's undemocratic, right? It's a big deal. And yet, person after person is violating it. Kellyanne Conley, uh, Conway, uh, Kaylee McEnany, Mike Pompeo, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, that's, I'm sorry to in, in, insert my little rant there, but maybe you can pick up and add one of your own. <laughs> sure. Well, I'm going to quote my dad, who is a, a loyal Deep State Radio listener, and telling me when I was a child, and I said, well, why should you stop at stoplights or stop signs when you can look in all directions and clearly there are no other cars and there's, you know, there's no safety issue. And he said, when people don't stop at stop signs, civilization breaks down. Um, and of course, his, you know, his point was, was quite right. Um, we, we typically, most of us, stop at stop signs even when there are no other cars around not be, you know and even when there are no police officers in sight no police cameras in sight we do it anyway because we think hey it's just the right thing to do and and you know there there are big debates both in legal scholarship and in the world of anthropology and so on about what is law what's the difference between law norms custom tradition etc uh, what makes law different and special, and without you know getting into all the the academic discussion of that, I think it, it is fair to say that the law stops working when people stop believing that it is important to make it work. You know that 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 the vast majority of laws, uh, unless you are you know unless you're a black motorist during a traffic stop um, in certain parts of the country. Um, the vast majority of laws are not enforced because the cops are standing there with guns drawn, ready to shoot you if you violate them. The vast majority of laws function effectively because almost every, you know, to paraphrase uh, uh, the late Lou Hankins' line about international law, uh, almost all people almost all the time abide by almost all the laws and they do it voluntarily because they agree that it is the right thing to do and that's kind of what keeps civilization as we know it chugging along. Um, when you get people with tremendous amounts of power and relative impunity who say, no, actually, I think it is optional for me, um, it does start breaking down. And, and I, you know, one of the many things that, that I, I'm happy to rant about, uh, about the media coverage of uh, the RNC and the Hatch Act violations, is you keep seeing headlines say things like, you know, Trump, a norm buster, you know, or, or breaking norms. Well, they're not just breaking norms. They are breaking laws. They, they, they are doing things that are illegal. Um, but when you're the president of the United States and you have essentially hijacked, suborned, and co-opted uh, the rest of the executive branch, um, you know, you get away with it and you even manage to sort of trick mainstream media outlets into saying, oh, it's a norms violation, as opposed to, wait a second, you know, these guys broke the law. There should be some consequence. 
when there stops being a consequence, yeah, we're, we're entering an era in which the following the law is clearly optional uh, for, for the Trump administration because, you know, who's going to hold them accountable? I mean, this is the sort of how many divisions does the Pope have? Uh, how many divisions does the New York Times have? Um, uh, you know, we, 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 we have lost the mechanisms for enforcing both norms and the law. Ryan. Yeah. Ryan, that's your cue. <laughs> um, so first, just for listeners who um, might be surprised of David's description of what uh, the White House Chief of Staff said, it's, an ex- it's almost, not, maybe it was an exact quote. I mean, he actually said in response to all these concerns raised about the multiple egregious violations of the Hatch Act, through the use of the vehicle of the Republican National Convention, he said, quote, nobody outside of the Beltway really cares, end quote. And what I worry about a ton, and this dovetails right back in a certain sense to Rosen and there are things that you talked about before in the pod and are very focused on, are the very worrisome scenarios in which the president and those close to him in the government used the power of government to interfere with the election or uh, to contest an election that he loses. And the guardrail for a lot of that is the Hatch Act, um, and especially when it comes to the Justice Department. And going back to uh, George W. Bush's administration, um, Attorney General McCasey in 2008 issues this memo to the Justice Department's called Election Sensitivities, and it's saying to all Justice Department employees, you should never take any actions like indictments and um, other public actions within an investigation to uh, affect the outcome of an election. And what does he then turn to? The Hatch Act. The entire second section of this memo is the Hatch Act that was then reaffirmed by Attorney General Holder, reaffirmed by Attorney General Lynch, and if Mark Meadows and the and Donald Trump can get away with telling the public and Fox News rebroadcasting it that the Hatch Act is dead litter, that's a joke, it's laughable, what's that, nobody really cares, um, well, then let's get ready for Bill Barr doing whatever he'd like to do in the run-up to the election and afterwards to issue indictments uh, against people, knowing that they will fail if they ever really go to court or the like money months from now in order to deploy the Department of Hamland Security and their um, security forces or whatever the case might be to, uh, for purely political purposes, um, for purely trying to get Donald Trump reelected or to stay in office even though he's lost the election. What stands between us and that chaos, that world, um, is in part uh, the Hatch Act and in larger part uh, the rule of law. And so that's what uh, Mark Meadows is scoffing at and trying to in a certain sense, I think, normalize the destruction of these guardrails. And I think that's, for me, what I don't just worry about what happened at the RNC. I'm very worried about how it prepares the ground for the next few months. Cynical, just unbelievably cynical. Um, you know, and I was thinking, Ryan, um, Ryan, I know you, you spent the first part of your life in South Africa. And I, I remember years and years ago, back when we were in law school, I, I spent a semester in South Africa while the contours of the first post-apartheid constitution were being debated. And I remember 
as a you know 25 year old watching a television show in which a uh, a panel was debating potential provisions of the new constitution and i can't remember what they were debating but it was it was something fairly arcane and they were passionately debating whether the constitution should have it or not and i remember thinking at the time that's so silly you know the us constitution has that the canadian constitution doesn't have that it really doesn't matter it's really pretty trivial and then i sort of realized that i was on some level sort of fundamentally missing the point that the the important part about this panel of people from all of South Africa's political parties debating whether or not this should be in the Constitution is the message that it sent was, it matters what's in the Constitution. You know, the it matters what's in the law because we're all going to abide by it, whatever it is. And so we have to we have to come up with something that we like because because law matters. You know, that that was the sort of overarching message of something like that. You know, it was not so much the focus on the particular detail, but just having representatives of all the political parties sending a really clear message to the viewing public that law matters. And it matters because we believe in it. It matters because we're going to believe in it. We're going to give it our loyalty. And when you get someone like Meadows saying, oh, no one cares about the law. Nobody cares if we break it. It's just so devastating to the rule of law. Well, I mean, David, can I ask can I ask Rosa and Ryan a question just to kind of follow that? I just sure. Oh, I mean, yeah, Rosa, we've, got, we've got we've got about eight minutes left. Oh well, this is very just just to build on that. How how then? I mean, just to not to sound too Pollyanna about it, Rosa. But then, what are we left with? Like like you said, there's just decency and stopping at stop signs. I mean, short of we have to change the, you know, the November outcome must be different. Is there any accountability? And if so, by whom? <laughs> That's a great question. And we shall see, right? I mean, I mean, and I say that in all seriousness, um, you know, there are a lot of different forms of accountability. Uh, I, do, I do know that when it comes to Trump, obviously lots of people are worried with, with, with I think, some good reason that the knowledge that he will almost certainly face criminal charges, as will members of his immediate family, uh, if he loses, um, may be part of what motivates Trump to do everything possible to cling to power, which, which I think has led to some, some to argue that the Democrat, you know, that Biden ought to quietly signal to him, oh, don't worry, you know, we, we, we won't pursue federal investigations and we'll try to persuade state prosecutors not to go after you. You know, the counter argument to that, of course, is that is that, you know, I, I would argue, for instance, that the Obama administration's failed to failure to pursue any accountability for Bush administration violations of torture, et cetera, you know, is part of what paved the way for a Trump to come along by sending the message, you know, all is forgiven in the name of stability, in the name of, you know, all being friends again. And it, it didn't work anyway. Right <laughs> now, here we are. Um, but but. But I also think that that legal and criminal justice forms of accountability are not the only forms of accountability. There are, um, you know, that there are, you know, there are things like the, the South African model of truth and reconciliation commissions where there's a possible potential prosecutorial bite if you don't come clean and so on. But but I think it's really, really hard. I mean, I, I, I don't have a good answer. And, and I don't, I'd love to hear what Ryan thinks. I, I do think that depressingly sort of the lessons from societies that have collapsed into authoritarianism or, or mass violence 
it's a whole lot easier to destroy the rule of law than it is to build it. And, um, you know, there was a World Bank report three or four or five years ago that attempted to study how long it took societies that started out in a pretty bad place on rule of law to to get to what you'd call rule of law. And I don't remember precisely what it was, but it's something like on average about 45 years. You know, it's, you can destroy it. You can destroy it in a short time and rebuilding it takes a long time precisely because it's these, you know, subtle things about how do you build a sense of, of cultural loyalty to, to a set of laws and norms. Briefly, Ryan. Sure. Um, I think there are two levers of accountability that I would highlight. One is um, come January 20th, uh, 2021, there might be a very different Justice Department. And I think people who are serving in this Justice Department now and in other agencies should be alerted to the fact that um, that Justice Department might very well look back and think about have there been Hatch Act violations which come with criminal penalties. They also come with other penalties, like you can lose your job, which is extremely important to people too as an incentive. So I think that's one. And I also think that Congress should make statements like we will do an investigation and on the basis of an investigation, we will make criminal referrals to the Justice Department so that it will push the likelihood of um, this kind of deterrence uh, so people understand that come January 21st. And then the second one, I think, is professional reputation. People do a lot because of it. And I think the people who are working in John Durham's office in the District of Connecticut should think about their futures with their names signed onto the documents that he files um, because that is an important, um, uh, will have an important effect on them, not just in history, but by the legal professional community, uh, which will, uh, is watching very closely uh, what they do. Um, good points. And I have to tell you, just as a, as, a, as a second personal rant, if the Biden administration does anything to put the Trump administration off the hook, I will s- devote the rest of my life to getting <laughs> them out of office and anybody in the Congress that supports them. But only after they get into office. <laughs> only after they get into office. But immediately thereafter, purging the Democratic Party. I'm not saying, by the way, I don't mean to suggest that, that I think that the Biden campaign specifically is saying that. That, just, uh, that, that is a no, I, I, I understand. I just, it's, it's happened so often before that there's a natural period. So I'm, I'm, we're down to that kind of one minute each, you know, and what I was thinking was I, I'd like to get everybody's gut reaction. We've had, for all intents and purposes, the Democratic convention, the Republican convention, um, uh, we're almost at Labor Day, the beginning of the campaign. There's 68 days from today left in the campaign. And, you know, we've all got kind of gut feelings. And I'm going to tell you my gut feeling first. Um, and it's not really good. And I'll tell you why it's not really good. Joe Biden's average lead in the Real Clear Politics group of polls is 7%. Um, in 1948, in 1968, in 1976, in 1988, uh, and in 2016, much larger leads in the polls disappeared. Um, and in fact, 
In most of those cases, with the, 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 there was a complete reversal. In the biggest of the cases, actually, in 1976, Gerald Ford had a was 33 points behind and came to within two points of winning the election in 1976. So there was a 31-point swing in that period of time. So that happens a lot. I will add to it that Hillary Clinton's lead in, stop now. This is stop. <laughs> no, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish. Hillary Clinton's lead in battleground states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Ohio, Florida, and North Carolina was higher than Joe Biden's lead in all of those states except Florida, where he his his margin is one percent, one point four percent greater, which is within the margin of error. So I'm feeling a little nervous after all of this. Uh, that that you know that second term for Trump is is not just impossible, not not just outlandish, not outlandish, but that if he is willing to throw over the rule of law and so forth as he seems to be, uh, his odds are greater than the odds of people who just let political fortunes take their course. So let me just go around one minute each. What's your gut telling you right now, Kavita? Uh, I, you said it best, David, but that's what is now literally keeping me up at night. I completely agree. And my concern is that just given how easy it is for this administration to not only lie, but also do anything possible to, for me, obfuscate science, I, I am incredibly worried that we are going to have a second term. Rosa? Why? Oh God, I just don't know. I I think it is too soon. I think I think both that anyone who feels complacent about a likely Biden win uh, needs to have their head examined. Um, frankly, even if there is a decisive Biden win, there's there's uh, as we've discussed on other episodes a, a exceptionally high likelihood that that Trump will contest it and try to deny it uh, by claiming that all mail-in ballots are fraudulent and so forth. Um, and so on the one hand, I think, I think it would be stupid to be confident that Biden is going to prevail. On the other hand, I also think we have no idea. Um, lots can happen in the next three months. Uh, this is in every possible way, a, a seriously weird uh, election season. So, so anything could happen. Ryan, the people's outlook to their weekend <laughs> hanging entirely on your view. Oh, no. Because <laughs> um, mine's just supporting this dismal outlook. I'd say one, I think he's going to get a bounce out of the Republican National Convention because I think it's been um, effective propaganda. They've just been willing to brazenly lie about things. Um, um, that he's, you know, for the affordable, he's for uh, protecting pre-existing conditions and the German chancellor loves him. I mean, you know, it's just like, it's a, it's a, it's a, not, it's a, not a parallel universe. There's no parallel <laughs> to it. It's just made up propaganda. Um, and so I think he gets a bounce out of the convention. I think he can close the gap in other ways. And then what you said, David, as well as like he can then start to interfere with people's ability to vote. So if they interfere with mail-in ballots and things like that, they cut another 2% out. And they only do it in states where it matters for them. 
And then um, I also think like what Rose is saying in terms of contesting the election as well as right, right before it. I don't know what stops him from three days before the election to say, I need to send out the marshals and Second Amendment people go to the polls. We got to make sure that um, non-citizens aren't voting. And that's what we have on election day. Or, you know, Pence and uh, he announced a cure to COVID and cancer on November 1st. That Because they, they're just fully willing to lie um, and do whatever it takes. It's just, a, it's just about power. It's not about law. It's not about arguments. It's not about persuasion. It's about power. And I think I'm quite worried as well. Well. Wow. That's that you know. That's just not a very cheerful outlook. But um, I think it's realistic, and I, I would go back to Rose's point uh, to, to to wrap it up. And that is, if you are overconfident, you are inviting defeat. If you are complacent, you are inviting defeat. If you do not think you have to work harder than you have ever worked, you are inviting defeat. And uh, there are plenty of reasons to think why Donald Trump could have another term. Uh, it 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 may even be likely by some calculus. And so if you think that's dangerous, and you know, we all obviously think that's dangerous, then you've got to do something about it. We don't have a show coming on Monday, and uh, this Monday and the following Monday, uh, we are taking off for the end of the summer and Labor Day. Uh, we will have a show next Thursday and the following Thursday, and if something happens big, we will do um, a special, of course. But uh, we, we encourage everybody to tune in next Thursday and the following Thursday, and to look for these kind of special events, um, uh, go to the dsrnetwork.com, uh, and uh, that information will be up there. We'll promote it via social media also. Uh, you can also go to the dsrnetwork.com uh, uh, and, and become a member, help support what we're doing. Uh, and uh, we think that that would be great of you. And if you've listened to this show, you know, more than a couple of times, go do it. You know, go help us. Uh, in, 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 in the interim, uh, uh, enjoy the, the ends of your summer uh, and work on things that you think are important to work on and stay healthy. And thank you very much to uh, Dr. Kavita Patel, to Rosa Brooks, and to Ryan Goodman. And we will see all of you guys again very, very soon. Bye-bye.